0: Well, welcome back to our study in Ecclesiastes. This is the third of the series, and if you have not heard either of the two previous sermons, I would encourage you to go back to our YouTube or our podcast and listen to those sermons from November. To maximize our time today, we won't recap everything that was covered, but here is a very brief synopsis so far. We've considered the possibilities and the implications for authorship. And we've concluded that Solomon must be the author of this work, and you will see that even more clearly today. And we've considered the contextual meaning of that motto, that repeated phrase in this book, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we've considered what that means for us today, in large part, to be thankful. So charting the course for today, here's the structure of the book. In chapter one, verses one through 11, you have the problem presented that all is vanity. From chapter one, verse 12, which is where we'll start today, All the way through chapter 6, you have the proof that all is vanity, and then concluding in chapters 7 through 12, the prescription for living with vanity. So today we're beginning that second section, the proof that all is vanity, and today we'll unpack the first main argument of Solomon entitled, The Search for Satisfaction. Now, how many of you remember the Rolling Stones? Come on, Jeff. Thank you. Not just you. Thanks, Dan. One of their better-known songs is entitled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Satisfaction. I don't mind the grammar, because rock doesn't play with rules. Man, they just couldn't get no satisfaction. From the guy on the radio trying to fire up their imagination to the TV salesman to their failed attempts at relationship, it was 1965, and they just couldn't get no satisfaction. Now, do you know that song was actually an ode to their embarrassment? that as rock stars, they couldn't be bought, but boy, did they wanna do a lot of buying. It was ironic. Now, whatever feelings you have about rock in the 60s, that sentiment shared by the stones is a less poignant version of part of Solomon's message here in Ecclesiastes. While we search and search for satisfaction, it constantly eludes us. Did you know that those who follow God are not to find a permanent home here? Peter calls Christ's followers exiles and sojourners Meanwhile, we read in Hebrews 11 that even Abraham was searching not for physical land, but for an eternal home built by God. Following God means being a stranger in this world, misfitted for all that this world is as we see it today. Believers fit into this world like a square peg in a round hole. We aren't meant to have permanent roots here and we shouldn't feel like we belong here. We are simply travelers making our way through this life to that eternal city whose architect and builder is God. We shouldn't be searching for ultimate satisfaction here and now, but do we live that way? A great weakness that we have is we tend to lose sight of what is to come. Rather than embracing that nomadic life of a sojourner, we become residents of this world, too often living as if, as if our greatest treasures are here and now. We display our resident status, our permanence in this world, by our lifestyle choices, the homes that we live in and decorate, the money that we spend and hoard, the churches and ministries that we build and stifle, the investments that we pursue, the priorities we live for, and so on. It's often said that we grip too tightly to the good things of this world and shower our affections upon the temporal things too freely. We try to get the same kind of gain as everyone else around us, the rat race, keeping up with the Joneses. Jesus warned his disciples of this temptation when he said in Matthew 6 that we should not lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, but rather in heaven. Many of you know that passage. It's in light of this warning that we see the beauty of the gift of this book, Ecclesiastes, which is given to us by God to help us avoid the pitfalls of earthly treasure. Now, as we looked at that motto, vanity of vanities, in the previous sermon, I shared an explanation of the phrase that had been given to me by Dr. John Street, soap bubbles. It's all soap bubbles, meaning this life is beautiful and magical like those multicolored soap bubbles you may get, but you try to hold it. You try to take control of it, pop, it's gone. Solomon made his case about this earlier in chapter one. He used the examples of the natural world. That was last time, the sun, the wind, the rivers, constantly moving yet never arriving. Now he's going to use his experiences to pop and burst even the soap bubbles that we think are good and beneficial. You may ask, what about having fun and enjoying life? What about contributing to society and building wealth? What about being wise? Is there really nothing to be gained from pursuing such things? Are we truly striving after wind, after soap bubbles, even in good pursuits? Solomon will argue in this section of the book that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions are often the very soap bubbles we pursue to protect ourselves from the harsh realities of life. To burst these bubbles, he will use the sharpest and most unavoidable needle possible, death. More than taxes, death is the one certainty that we erase from our minds and avoid facing by preoccupying ourselves with soap bubbles. Now, you may think, wow, how incredibly depressing, (laughs) but no, This warning, this caution about death is exactly what we need to wake up from the distractions of the soap bubbles. Death is not the dark reality of a pointless existence, but rather it's used as a ray of light to point us to the eternal reality in which only God can bring life from death. While death is an enemy and one day will be cast into lake of fire, this side of glory, God uses death to help us enjoy life. The reality of death can help us adjust our pursuit from trying to control and manipulate this life to find some gain and instead to pursue joy by receiving life as a gift. Life in God's world is gift, not gain, said one prominent philosopher of Ecclesiastes. Now, throughout the section of this book, you will see Solomon's search for satisfaction in this world. He'll show you that after all of his pursuits, He was left staring at vanity, soap bubbles. Life in his worldly pursuits left him with a brutal emptiness. But the conclusion at the end will not be so empty. As we'll see that though there's no way for the vanity and the soap bubbles to go away, God enables us to enjoy this vanity with purpose. With all of that, please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse 12. And it's a long section, but I'm gonna ask you to stand For the reading of God's word. You can follow along in your Bibles or you can listen as I read. Hear the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous endeavor which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is bent cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I spoke within my heart, saying, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has seen an abundance of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and simple-minded folly. I came to know that this also is striving after wind, because in much, much wisdom there is much vexation, and whoever increases knowledge increases pain." I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with gladness so that you will see good things. And behold, it too was vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of gladness, what does it do? I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with wine while my heart was guiding me wisely and how to seize simple-minded folly until I could see where is this good for the sons of men and what they do under heaven the few days of their lives. I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes asked for, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any gladness for my heart was glad because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I turned to all my works my hands had done and the labor which I had labored to do and behold, All was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no advantage under the sun. So I turned to see wisdom, madness, and simple-minded folly. What will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that there is an advantage in wisdom over simple-minded folly, as light has an advantage over darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that the fate of one becomes the fate of them all. Then I said in my heart, As is the fate of the fool, so will my fate be also. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said in my heart, This too is vanity, for there's no remembrance of the wise man along with the fool forever, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man dies with the fool. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is vanity and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a simple-minded fool, yet he will have the power over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored and for which I have acted wisely under the sun. And this too is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart to despair of all my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his portion to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and the striving of his heart in which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his endeavor is painful and vexing. Even at night his heart does not lie down. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and have his soul see good in his labor. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment outside of him? For to a man who is good before him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and gladness. While to the sinner, he has given the endeavor of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good before God. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Please take a seat. I know that was a lot of scripture, but I wanted you to have all of that in mind because we will not have everything on the screen as we walk through this. But also by the end of this study, God willing, you will have heard the whole entire book of Ecclesiastes read out loud. And it is good for us to hear the word of the Lord. Now, as we look at the text, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, we again see a qualification as to the identity of the author. Now, you remember the call to worship from today, 1 Kings chapter 10. The fame of Solomon had spread so far that the queen of Sheba, which is near modern-day Ethiopia or Somalia, had come seeking to test and be blessed by his incredible wisdom As king over Jerusalem, Solomon was blessed immensely with wisdom and riches, yet as that text noted, God's purpose in blessing Solomon was so that he would pursue justice and righteousness. And that is a common Old Testament theme for God and his people. And we know that even with everything that he had been blessed with, gifted by God, Solomon fell into the same sinful traps that we are familiar with. And it's explained in the very next chapter. You go from chapter 10, and there's this amazing account of all Solomon's blessings. You go to chapter 11, and you see the shame of his folly. He goes from worldwide renown to being chastised for his disobedience, turning away from Yahweh to false gods and idols. Gold, gals, and gluttony, as some have called it. Rather than pursuing righteousness and justice, Solomon lived too much in his excess, so much so that his heart was led astray. So, what happened? Well, I think it is likely that here in Ecclesiastes we have reflective thoughts from Solomon regarding what happened. In this section, we see Solomon making a case that all of his pursuits proved vain. He says that he gave his heart to seek and explore by wisdom everything that has been done under heaven, everything. Solomon gives his heart to this tax, and he shows it's such an intense endeavor. It's not half-hearted. He says, I gave my heart to know this, and it's a royal pursuit. He's the greatest king who has ever lived in Israel, the greatest king in Jerusalem, and he's exploring everything under the sun, Now, a brief aside here, a proper exposition of wisdom literature cannot be verse by verse. We can't do that because thoughts are revealed bit and parcel and thoughts build upon each other and then they circle back. So don't expect this to be a cohesive straight through. But by the end, I do pray that you'll see how this all fits together. You're going to see several times in this section that Solomon speaks to his heart. He knows that his heart is the most central part of himself. Out of his heart will come all of his pursuits. He learned that, he learned that from his parents and from David specifically. According to Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. If you read those first few chapters of Proverbs, you'll see that Solomon is a stated author and he fiercely regards pursuing the fear of the Lord as wisdom. Then you read first Kings 11 and you're baffled. How could such a God-fearing man who asked God for, not for riches, but for wisdom, fall so far away and worship false gods? I think we have an answer when we look at this section of Ecclesiastes. As Solomon pursues satisfaction or happiness, he does as all humans do. He puts all his effort in making himself happy and pleased. Every choice shaped and influenced by a desire for personal satisfaction and happiness. And we're no different. Think for a moment. Just about everything you've done today was to make yourself happy. Or you judged a situation because it didn't make you happy. You fed yourself or drank something warm. Or maybe you didn't and now you regret it. Maybe you stayed in the shower a bit longer because it was nice and warm. Or you're not happy because it got short, maybe by little ones. Maybe you're tired this morning because you stayed up late last night for you time, scrolling through social media after caring for others all day. And for the rest of the day, you'll continue this pattern of pursuing what makes you happy. That's what we all long for, happiness, satisfaction. Every pursuit we have is marked by an obsession to be happy in what we do. Our jobs, our education, relationships, raising children, having fun, etc. We aren't robots. We don't simply exist motionless in time. We alter the world around us. We make decisions that have outcomes. We try to control the world around us, planning and dreaming about the potential futures that we think are just within our grasp. We all live with purpose toward a specific end goal, to be happy and to be satisfied. Solomon, he did the same thing. He just did so with a greater gift of wisdom and all the practical blessings more so than any of us could have ever imagined or possessed. And here's the thing. Solomon did it. He held happiness. He held satisfaction in his hands. He enjoyed wisdom and pleasure and food and drink and work and labor and all the possessions. And as he held all that he could in his hands, he watched the soap bubbles vanish just as quickly as they arrived, only to be gone forever. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 17 shares of Solomon's pursuit of wisdom and its counterpart, folly. He endeavored to know both sides, and even in doing so, he came to the same conclusion: all is vanity, either side. The more he learned, the sadder he became. In response, we may be prone to say, ignorance is bliss, right? But we don't really believe that. Go to school, study hard, get a degree learn and climb the ladder, aim for the top where the sun shines the brightest. That's often what we believe. So what if we pursued the opposite? What if we pursued the ignorance that is bliss? Well, Solomon did that too. Look at chapter two, verses one through three. Instead of studying at the University of Wisdom, he hits the streets to see what it's like to savor the life of gladness, to stop being vexed by wisdom and knowledge, carpe diem, YOLO, hakuna matata, gratify yourself. Now, if Solomon thought it painful and sad to increase in wisdom and knowledge, he was about to face a similar sadness in that anesthetizing nature of simple-minded folly. Have you ever read or watched an autobiography of a comedian? They are some of the loneliest and saddest people, yet they regularly fill concert halls and Netflix specials for thousands, often encouraging excessive drinking so that people will forget for a moment the pain of their reality. Forget the broken relationships, forget the dead-end job, forget the insecurities, forget the failures, forget the hopes and dreams, just live in the moment. And we all know that such entertainment solves nothing. It truly exists as an escape. And those forerunners to the escape, the comedians that we pay to entertain and to delight, are often no more than background music played by the quartet of the Titanic as it sunk into the Atlantic Ocean. If we're going down, we might as well be lighthearted as we do it. But self-gratification even has a limit, doesn't it? And once Solomon finds it, he turns to work. If you look at verses four through six of chapter two, He makes great works, houses and vineyards and gardens and pools, even a forest. If simple-minded folly and jokes and laughter didn't hold the key to happiness and neither did being excessively wise, then maybe work and discipline and goals and finance and building and farming, this could be what he's been missing, getting things done. So we welcome the responsibility of a royal general manager pursuing great things, Verses 7 through 10 continue to explain his accomplishments. You can see them on the screen. Servants and flocks and herds, all more than any previously in Jerusalem, silver and gold, singers, concubines. He had it all. Fame, fortune, power, pleasure. He's reached the pinnacle of life. Everything he wants, he gets. And he enjoys it. And the labor itself was the reward because he enjoyed the work. But when he takes a moment and he gathers these soap bubbles and he examines it all. He surveys the might of his empire, the wealth of his storehouses, the beauty of his court and harem. He comes to the same conclusion. Whether pursuing knowledge or folly, pleasure or work, possessions or wealth, increasing in all of those did not yield one ultimate gain. Sure, there was some immediate gratification But true and lasting satisfaction was not found in any of those endeavors. As much as we search for happiness in every aspect that this life has to offer, we all come to realize that the things of this world, including its pleasures, do not last. Everything is temporary, soap bubbles, vanity, And Solomon told us it would be so. In chapter one, verse 14, he said clearly that he had seen all the works done under the sun and he came to the conclusion that all is vanity and striving after the wind. He said that on the front end. He gave you his hypothesis. And then in verses one through 11 of chapter two, he provides just a few of the receipts. Further, he tells us that the way things are cannot ultimately be changed. Can the blind man will himself to see? Can the poor man will himself rich? Can the one who has suffered forget all their griefs? Ecclesiastes 1.15 is a clear rebuke of our self-determinism. We have no power to make the world different than it is. You can make the sandcastle. You can make many sandcastles, as fancy as you want, but they are still sandcastles on the beach, and the tide is coming. So what is the tide in this analogy? What will come to demolish the sandcastles? What proves to be the biggest needle to pop all our soap bubbles? Death. Whether a wise man or a fool, the same fate becomes them all. This is the harsh reality revealed in chapter two, verses 14 through 16. And Solomon was no fool. He tried his hand at wine, but didn't do so foolishly with reckless abandon. He kept his faculties, according to verse 3. Yet even as the wisest man who ever lived, he would nonetheless be destined for a grave, just like the fool. Sure, his grave may be fancier, but it doesn't much matter when you're not alive. He realizes the issue facing him is that all of his achievements one day will be left to another And even though he's lived wisely, it doesn't mean the one who comes after him will live wisely. Those who follow us will have all the control over our toil and effort when we're gone. Maybe they'll do something with it. Maybe they'll invest. Maybe they'll make it greater. Maybe they'll waste it. Either way, we're gonna be forgotten. So what matters in our achievement? If there's nothing to gain, why bother with anything? Now, you may think that is very gloomy and pessimistic, But if so, I would encourage you to reflect more on the brevity of life. In the last sermon, I encouraged us in this way, said, let the reality of death, of your death, sink deeply through your skin and bones into your heart. We will quickly disappear from this earth, so if we're not here forever, we need to consider how to live during this momentary breath of life. Now, when we take the time to sit and, and to consider the reality of one day being a forgotten nobody, we'll likely come to the same conclusion to Solomon's question in chapter two, verse 22. What do we stand to gain? We don't stand to gain anything. And this world distracts us from dealing with serious questions like this. This is a sobering thing to think about, to think about death, and yet every advert, every billboard, every TV commercial, every social media post all divert our attention away from the inevitable end that is coming. I mean, Who really wants to think about dying? Let alone considering to plan for it in a deliberate way. So since we can't cure death, since we can't cure misery, let's just forget about those things so we can be happy or at least pretend to be happy. So people fill their lives with all kinds of other things. Soap bubbles. Now, not all of it's bad. Sometimes there's even gladness to be found in the labor, but we still try to distract ourselves from the end. Distraction and diversion. that look over here. Don't pay attention. Look over here. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Look over here. That's how we console ourselves. Have you ever consoled a toddler? Perhaps their toy was just broken and you can't reason with them. They have no ears to hear how they should play. Uh, Less intensely if they don't want their toys to break. So, what do you do? You distract them. Come over here, give mommy and daddy a hug. It'll be okay. You have other toys. Look, this other shiny toy you used to love so much. Isn't that what we do? Grown ups are not that different from toddlers, we're all human. If we struggle to feel what Solomon has penned here, it might be because we've given ourselves over to too many diversions that are distracting us from ultimate questions about mortality. One theologian noted that in our day, we are submerged beneath an abundance of trivia and are fully wired, always connected, completely digitized world of social media and limitless sources of entertainment. Now it's likely though that Solomon wouldn't look down on any one of these things as they stand in themselves. But he would ask, can we still look death in the eye? Or are we pursuing the soap bubbles and pretending that they won't ever burst? If death doesn't inform how we live, then we are functionally pretending that death doesn't exist. Our permanent problem is that we are not permanent. Solomon is bidding us to put away our distractions and to confront that truth head on. If we do, we can receive the first glimmers of light amidst a seemingly gloomy outlook. We've all had those bubbles popped. Pleasure, pointless. Materialism, meaningless. Go ahead, laugh today, but know that it won't be for that long. The sharpness of death bursts all the bubbles that we love to distract ourselves with. But you know what? Death's bubble can also be burst. The sharpness of death bursts all the bubbles that we love to distract ourselves with, but death's bubble can also be burst. At face value, Solomon's solution for living the good life, it doesn't seem like much. He says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and have his soul see good in all his labor, that's verse 24. If you aren't paying attention, it could seem like that nihilistic creed, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But there are several differences we should see here between that slogan and the worldview that Solomon offers in Ecclesiastes. The first difference is that the nihilists will say we're to eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry, that's it. Solomon doesn't say that. He says, eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. Not all, what. God has given the good things of this world to us and they are their own reward. Truly accepting the reality of our own death helps us to stop expecting too much from the good things that we pursue. We begin to pursue good things for what they are rather than for what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our dependency as creatures because we are not the creator. With death in view, we can see God's good good gifts in every aspect of our lives. And instead of using the gifts as a means to a greater end or to worldly gain, we can practice enjoying the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in the gifts. And normally, we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Normally, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose and probably to make a reputation for ourselves, achieve success. What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we just ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful or to find an identity, but simply to make us faithful and generous? What if the the reality of death is what shows us how we are meant to truly live? We saw in chapter one that we struggle to accept things as they are. We long for these lives of permanence in a world that constantly changes, and we strive to achieve that permanence. Then we long for change in a world that is full of permanent repetition, and we dream of how to interrupt it and change it just a little bit. The same idea is present in this section of Ecclesiastes. Look at verses four through eight of chapter two. It's striking here because of all these vast projects that Solomon undertakes, it evokes the garden of Eden, the beginning, as if Solomon was trying to recreate God's good and perfect world, but it cannot be done. The world in which we live is now fallen and cursed. God has placed a fracture in the fabric of the universe and things are not now what they should be. Everything is our limitations are a reality of being creatures not the creator and being fallen creatures we now have flawed assumptions about what it means to live in this created world we tend to use the world around us our work, our possessions and people as leverage for our own purposes to achieve our own goals to achieve happiness and satisfaction these become the tools we use to master life for our own ends But Solomon's key point in this section is that the world cannot be leveraged to suit me, and life is meant to be enjoyed, not mastered. Regarding this portion of Ecclesiastes, one theologian had this to say. He said, realizing this can help you deal with life in a way that honors God. For example, do not be surprised to find yourself in a frustrating situation from which you cannot escape by means of controlling it. Not everything can be fixed. Not everything is a problem to be solved. Some things must be born, must be suffered and endured. Wisdom does not teach us how to master the world. It does not give us techniques for programming life such that life becomes orderly and predictable. As you look at the endeavors of Solomon from chapter one, verse 14 to chapter two, verse 23, you'll notice that his pursuits of wisdom, of folly, of work, of treasure, of pleasure, they all seem to be very focused on himself. And in 2.24, God is finally brought back to consideration. After looking far and wide for satisfaction, in everything that he could do, for happiness and all the things that he could control and invest in, he realizes that the gift of satisfaction is from God, literally from God's hand. Ecclesiastes 2.24 and 25, we know this to be true. We know it. Happiness isn't found in the box with your favorite Christmas gift. Happiness is not automatically a part of sexual involvement. Enjoyment is not found on the key ring of your dream house. It can't ride with you in the passenger seat of your new car. Many of us know what it's like to have tasted the best this life has to offer and to still be left wondering, what comes next? Solomon teaches us that God has to give us enjoyment or the things itself, the gifts sex, house, a car, will leave us unsatisfied. And the way that God gives us enjoyment in his gifts is by giving us perspective on ourselves. We need to learn that the gift is not meant to be a stepping stone to greater things. We need to learn that we are not meant to rule the world or to master our destiny or to achieve ultimate gain through our careers. If we learn to have a proper perspective on ourselves, then we discover that satisfaction is its own reward from life and from our effort spent living it. That's what Solomon means when he says there's nothing better than to eat and drink and have your soul seek good in all your labor. No one has satisfaction or enjoyment or happiness outside of him that is God. And in the final verse of chapter two, we see that God is also the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and gladness. Now, it should strike you here in verse 26 that it's really only after uh, Solomon's lifelong quest through his own life for happiness that he discovers where it comes from. The rest of the time, he was looking for it in the things, in the houses, in the gardens, in the concubines, Now he finally sees where satisfaction comes from, not from his striving, but from God's giving. God gives these things to the person who is good or literally who pleases him. Now I know at this point that the encouragement may not seem to shine very bright. It might seem abstract or out of reach somehow, but stick with me here. Even though we're just beginning to unpack Solomon's arguments from experience and wisdom, you're gonna see soon that he's committed to showing us there is a way to live in which we are in right relationship with God and with others. And we need to trust Solomon's wisdom here that true satisfaction will only come if we see ourselves rightly as dependent creatures made for relationship with our creator. Now, as we close here, I wanna give you a brief encouragement from Jesus, and I believe it's connected to everything that we have discussed this morning. In Matthew chapter 12, there are several stories of the ministry of Jesus, and there's an interesting phrase repeated three times in that chapter. It's something greater than blank is here. And I'll give you those three on the screen. Jesus says this the first time in verse six in relation to the temple. He's been accosted by the Pharisees for having his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus rebuked them with a story of David eating consecrated bread out of need. Further, technically, priests work on the Sabbath and they're not held guilty anyways. Jesus finishes by saying, something greater than the temple is here. Then later on in the chapter, some of the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to see a sign from him. And this was not a genuine desire to, to have him reveal himself as Messiah. This was just to try to trap him, to to use something against him. Jesus responded by saying that the men of Nineveh, and you remember those men, the the ones that Jonah finally preached to who repented, will rise up and condemn this generation. And Jesus's reason for the rebuke is very cutting. The Ninevites, who were fierce pagans, repented at the preaching of Jonah. You remember Jonah, the super righteous guy who always listened to God? Right, right the reluctant preacher of repentance, who himself was often in rebellion to God. And Jesus says, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, the undertone here is that even pagans can repent with a reluctant preacher, yet the supposed holy men of Israel would rather seek to prove Jesus to be an imposter than turn in repentance and belief. Shameful. And finally, in a comparative statement, Jesus says that the queen of the south We read about in our call to worship, the queen of Sheba, similarly to the Ninevites, will rise up at the judgment of this generation and also condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Even she recognized that though she came to see Solomon, it was in fact Yahweh, the Lord God, who blessed Solomon, not Solomon's ability. So now, friends, in Christ something greater than Solomon has arrived. I share all of that with you here at the close to give us a reminder. A major theme in Matthew 12 is that the Messiah was not just for the Jews. The Messiah was not coming only for those who are intellectual, learned, and wise. The Messiah was not for the proud and the arrogant, for those who puffed themselves up on lineage and affiliation. The Messiah was not for those who thought of themselves as good in their own sight. No, the Messiah is for those who don't need a sign to be satisfied. The Messiah is for those who know that they cannot achieve anything that God has not given to them. The Messiah is for those who daydream about being with the king rather than daydream about being the king. The Messiah is for those who aren't trying to build storehouses for their own treasures, but are seeking to fill God's storehouses with his treasure. And here's how you see the connection at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter two. It says, we'll either gather for God, serving and honoring him, or we'll be gathering and collecting so that God can use all of our toil for his good purposes, meaning giving to his people. Now, I'd imagine that some of you this morning need to be reminded of that. Some of you need to hear that as you consider the brevity of your life and what you choose to pursue until the day that you die, that there is something greater than Solomon, greater than the preaching of repentance, greater than the temple and all of its laws and rules. And it's Christ, Christ himself, who is pure wisdom, Christ himself, the one who makes a way for our repentance, Christ himself, God made flesh to dwell with us that we no longer wait to meet God at the temple. So don't be satisfied with anything that this world has to offer, but find your satisfaction in the only one who can bring true joy and fulfillment even in this momentary life. That is why we constantly encourage everyone to seek Christ, to be found in him, and to know that his death, not yours, is what brings your life meaning. Focus less on what you can be given and more on the giver of the good gifts. I have some questions for you this morning to ponder as you consider these truths. They'll be up on the screen for a moment. I'm just gonna give you a minute or so. Read the questions, write them down, take a picture. These are questions that will be helpful for you to think about this text in light of your life, to think about your own pursuit of satisfaction. In a moment, I'll close us in prayer And we'll continue to orient our hearts to praise God and to hope in Christ. Father, there's a lot to think about this morning in this text. Not only is the text vexing, so is our toil, the labor, and it is hard to think about all the things that we do, all the things that we busy ourselves with. But we ask you to help us to think rightly about what can truly satisfy God, every one of us in here has our own soap bubbles, the things that we chase, the vanities. Please help convict each of our own hearts about those things that we chase, the gifts rather than the giver. God, please humble us when we think about your sovereignty in this world and our inability to have the power to change it unless you will it. May we be comforted that things are the way they are and not rail against your rule and your reign. God, we pray too, help us, help us to appreciate the simple pleasures of this life. Help us not to, to think that everything is pointless, but even the simple things in, in our work and in our daily bread to be grateful and to appreciate them. God, thank you for using Solomon to help us think about death. Though we despise it, may we not hide it away. Please keep the reality of death in front of us. Help us to cherish the life that you give rightly. And God, we ask you to give us a better understanding of this pursuit of satisfaction. Help us to grow in our gratitude and appreciation for satisfaction that can only be provided through your son, Jesus Christ. May we recognize like the Ninevites and like the Queen of Sheba that all of these things are pointless without you. So may we enjoy and appreciate the here and the now blessings that you give, but may we pursue our satisfaction in the one who gives from everlasting to everlasting. May Jesus be our prize. May the kingdom to come be our eternal rest from all this toil under the sun. Help our hearts to be more oriented towards you as we continue in worship this morning through song. May our hearts be light because of you. May we not see this world as pointless because of you, but may we see everything in light of who you are and what you have done. And may we praise Christ. Encourage our hearts this morning to love you and to worship you, we pray. Amen.